Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another evening where we will continue our reflections into Paul's second letter to the Church of Corinth. We will start up chapter 9 this evening, but before we get into chapter 9, I did want to speak to something else. You know, I have been getting a number of emails and also people pulling me aside and asking a very similar question. I almost set this aside for a special topic Thursday, but I thought I would just talk to it here for a few minutes this evening. And the question generally is, Joe, how do you best engage people of other faiths, whatever faith that might be? And I think there's something quintessential to answering that question, and that is, understanding that each and every conversation is different. I know I've talked about this on air before, but I do need to hammer this home as I have been getting a number of questions about it. We have the tendency to study up other faiths. Maybe you're a Christian and you're studying up on the Mormon faith and you want to better know the Mormon faith so as to better understand or rather defend your Christian faith against the Mormon faith. And that's fine, and that's good. But please understand, that Mormon is going to be different than the next Mormon you talk to. Or maybe that Jehovah Witness is going to be different than the next Jehovah Witness you speak to. The idea in principle here is each and every person you encounter is going to be different, even if they belong to the same denomination, okay? Even if they belong to the same faith. Why? because that person has a very different set of experiences and whole history behind why they are asking you the question they are asking you. Now, does it help to study up on Mormon apologetics? Yes, of course it does. But don't think for a second that how you answer this Mormon is the exact same way you need to answer the next Mormon. Why? Quite simply because they have a different set of experiences. This is why you have heard me say before that the best way to start that conversation is by asking them a question. What is the most important aspect to your faith? And you ask that question because there'll be a different answer. The Mormon faith has their set of beliefs, but not every Mormon is going to be able to regurgitate or give you back verbatim what they teach. Okay, so one Mormon, while they have the same formation, might not be able to communicate their faith in the same way. I've had many Mormons come to my door, and I do ask that question. And as I've shared before, often I get a different answer. (laughs) One Mormon says the kingdom of God. Uh, Another Mormon might speak to a work of mercy. Whatever it might be, I ask the question because in asking the question, They are not only going to tell me what I need to be present to, but it also gets them talking about their faith in a way maybe they wouldn't have talked about their faith if you didn't ask the question. So what I'm asked personally, what is the best way to engage people in their faith? 
ask questions. Ask questions and understand that every person, while they might belong to a similar faith, what you'll find is most people will, in fact, give you different answers. And then the conversation, I think, at least in my experience, will be what it needs to be, right? You will be able to speak to concretely what they have said. So often we get stuck thinking that a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness needs to hear something that you've read about. Okay, maybe that's the case, but how do you know that's the case? The only way you could possibly know that's the case is if you ask the question. So studying Mormon apologetics can be a good thing. Studying Mormon apologetics for the sake of accessing information post-initial question. Think about whatever faith you belong to. Would every person speak to that faith the exact same way you would? You know, as a Catholic, I know there are many Catholics who would give many different answers into what the most important thing is to the Catholic faith. Now, as Catholics, it's the Eucharist. That's the teaching of the Church. But you're not going to get every Catholic probably saying the Eucharist. You might get them talking about maybe an issue of social justice, which is important, very important to the Christian and Catholic life. But there's a reason why the Catholic Church says the Eucharist. And of course, I've spoken to that a great deal in many programs. But my point is this. Just as you'll get a different answer from many different Catholics about what is most important to the Catholic faith, although there is a hierarchy of truths to the Catholic faith, as there is in every faith, you will get different answers to that question from different people within that faith. And of course, I'm drawing this out within the context of the Mormon faith. The Mormon faith has their hierarchy of truths. So you ask that question, put it in their court, and then you allow the conversation to evolve. Now, what is also very important to this conversation is that you listen. Is that you listen. Make sure that when you ask them the question and the series of questions you want to ask, you allow them to answer those questions you are asking. Don't jump the gun. Don't think you have all the answers. You may have some of the answers for them, but allow them to speak. This is what we call the art of listening. If you want to speak better, what does the proverb say? Listen more. Listen more. So often we interrupt <laughs> the answer to our question. And I don't know if there is anything more sloppy in any apologetic discussion than interrupting what someone is trying to say based upon what you think they need to hear. Let them finish what they are saying so the very real conversation can evolve. That listen-response dialogue. If we are going to discover truth, there has to be a real dialogue. Dia to logic, right? Logic is the instrument to reason. We discover truth by applying our reason, by applying our logic, by engaging others in a very real dialogue. If there's no listening, there's no dialogue, but only a monologue. And truth isn't discovered in monologues, but dialogues. That's why Jesus asked so many questions. Jesus was asked 308 questions in the gospel. Jesus was asked 308 questions in the gospel. I have always found it to be a more fascinating truth to discover that he answered the question with a question 
305 times. 305 times. Why? Because he wanted to make sure that the person asking the question was thinking critically about what they were actually asking. He was wanting to enter into a dialogue. So did he answer? Well, sure he answered. Did those conversations evolve? Of course they evolved. So we ask questions, uh, we listen, and we don't make the assumption that just because I've studied this faith or that faith and I know what they believe, or at least I think I know what they believe, you have all the answers to their questions. Let them speak and respond accordingly. Now, as I've responded to those people who have sent me emails and who have pulled me aside, <laughs> you have to know your faith. You have to know your faith. We have this call to study our faith so that we might be able to respond to the questions we receive. And take it as an opportunity to go deeper in your faith if you are asked a question and you don't know how to answer it. Don't think that you failed God, per se, as much as it is God inviting us to go deeper in our faith. Maybe, something that I've tried and it's certainly worked, take that question that you have been given if you don't know it and let the person know that you will get back to them. Often what happens in those cases is you strike up a friendship, and sometimes a beautiful friendship, if the other party is so willing to engage you. So to the question then, how do you engage people? Know your faith, right? Be disposed to engage that person, and as you engage that person, ask questions, listen, we have to understand that apologetics is more than just a game of simulation. What do I mean by that? Well, many of us know who LeBron James is. If you are LeBron James's opponent, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to do everything you can defensively to prepare for him. So say you have three, four, five practices before you go against the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James. You go through what is called a series of simulations. The problem with that is, well, it's probably obvious to many of you, there's only one LeBron James. And yet, we still in our preparation try to simulate what it might be like playing against LeBron James based upon a player who might have similar attributes to, to LeBron James. So in preparation, you go through this game of simulation and you hope it benefits you during the actual game. And will it, to some degree, yes, it may. But is it going to prepare you for the actual LeBron James? No, because there's only one LeBron James. So you prepare with an understanding that as you prepare, there's always going to be something that is unpredictable. And that's what you have to be present to, that which is unpredictable. God is constantly wanting to open our eyes to that which is unpredictable. Why? Because God's ways are so unconventional, and He desires that we enter into His unconventional way. So we prepare, and as we prepare, we are open to the reality that when we enter into that apologetic conversation, sticking with the Mormon faith for the sake of this reflection, it is not always going to go down as maybe your Mormon apologetic book says it will, because it just never does. Okay, so many things to think about, uh, many things to be present to, and just by way of postscript to all of this, pray. You want to know how to better engage your brothers and sisters in Christ? 
pray. Let God inform you. What does John chapter 14, verse 26 say? I will bring to you the counselor, the advocate, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will bring to your memory what you need to know. And so it is. We invoke the Holy Spirit in those moments. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 to 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 1 to 10. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the offering for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brethren so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in this case, so that you may be ready as I said you would be lest if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren to go on to you before me and arrange in advance for this gift you have promised so that it may be ready not as an exaction, but as a willing gift. The point is this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that you may always have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your resources and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Amen. All right, well, lots to talk about here. As we were wrapping up yesterday evening, I made a note that we were going to talk about generosity. So certainly the gift of generosity will be among the things we talk about with our remaining time. But from the outset, I did want to speak to this word zeal. Paul reveals to the Corinthians that it was their zeal that stirred up many Macedonians to respond generously to the collection. Now, I don't know about you, but that struck me. Your zeal is what stirred up the gift. Uh, on a footnote before we really engage this, my friends... <laughs> If you are a pastor of a church and you make a point to ask big during maybe uh, tax time when, when we get our taxes back because people will have money, that's fine. You can do that. You can be strategic that way. But understand, the first thing that is going to initiate the gift is what? What has Paul been talking about? <laughs> the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaking through you. You see, the Holy Spirit inspires the gift. Zeal stirs the heart. What is zeal? Zeal is that ardor. The word ardor comes from uh, the Latin ardire, which means to set ablaze, to set ablaze. The idea here is, well, maybe you can think of a, of a brush fire. You know, when there's dry land, you have a brush fire, a fire that will explode exponentially because of the dry land. When we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, 
our souls are set on fire, inflamed with God's love. And in turn, we will be zealous for God. We will be zealous for the Lord. We will be enthusiastic. Remember what the word enthusiasm means. Enthusiasm comes from the Greek entheos, to bear God within, to bear God within, right? Theos. So what St. Paul is talking about here as it relates to zeal is this spirit-filled enthusiasm, this infectious enthusiasm, this brush fire of enthusiasm that leads more souls to Christ. So we encounter Christ, and out from that encounter with Christ, out from that encounter with the Holy Spirit, we are zealous, we are fervent, we are excited for God. Now, every time I talk about this, I am made to reflect with the many encounters that I have had or my family has had with things that get them excited and how they respond to that. Here I'm thinking about uh, my oldest son's first time at a ball game, and I can actually fast forward this to two weeks ago because two weeks ago my youngest son went to his first baseball game. And what did he experience? But just at the, <laughs> at the sight of the stadium from a mile away, a great excitement. There was something that overcame him. He, he suddenly was very excited. We, we get into the parking lot, and as we begin to get closer to the stadium, he can hardly contain himself. And he can hardly contain himself. And so as we begin to go into the stadium, and we open up the doors, what does he see? Well, he sees the stadium that he has seen on television a handful of times. So he is experiencing something so surreal. Not that my six-year-old son was going to use the word surreal, but I could see in his face he was having a very surreal experience. And his eyes, I can see his eyes go to the grass, that beautiful green grass fanning out in that beautiful design. He can smell the popcorn. He can, he can smell uh, the, the garlic fries. He can hear the announcer. And suddenly, as he encounters the stadium, he's getting even more excited about what he's going to experience. And so for nine innings, he was raptured. He was just caught up in this great excitement of being at a baseball game. And what do you think the first thing that my six-year-old son did after the baseball game. Well, he called his mom. All he wanted to do was to talk about his experience. He got home. He called his six-year-old buddies, right? And all he wanted to do was tell his six-year-old buddies about the baseball game. Why? Because he was so zealous. He was so excited about what he had just encountered. And guess what? <laughs> Everyone who he talked to about the baseball game also wanted to go to a baseball game. Why? Because his zeal was infectious. His excitement overwhelmed them, <laughs> right? And is this not what being evangelized is all about? Being overwhelmed by the joy of the gospel, the reality of the gospel. So for here this evening, what I want to highlight is the importance of zeal and enthusiasm and its impact my six-year-old son, as my oldest son did six, seven years ago, was all about sharing his encounter because of the kind of experience he had in encountering it. The same thing happens 
in the Christian faith. We encounter Jesus Christ, and the encounter is so overwhelming, all we want to do is share it. How many times do we read in the gospel (laughs) Jesus telling those he encounters to not go and tell people what he just did for them? And yet, (laughs) those who he just encountered, what do they do? They go out and tell them all about Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus did that because he didn't want everyone coming to him just to see the miracle. But how can you contain such excitement? I'm thinking about the Samaritan woman, this profound encounter that takes up all of chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. And out from that encounter, she cannot contain herself. This is the kind of zeal that St. Paul is talking about. The inability to contain yourself for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And oh, by the way, if people are not overwhelmed by your preaching, your preaching on Jesus Christ, they're not going to be convinced to put the money in the basket that God might be calling them to put in the basket. Okay? All right, how about, let's see here, verse 5. I wanted to speak to verse 5, so I thought it necessary to encourage the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for your promised gifts so that in this way it might be ready as a bountiful gift and not as an exaction. What's going on there? Uh, this bountiful gift. The Greek there, eulogia, right? Blessing. We, that's where we get the word um, eulogy, blessing. Now, the Greek term for exaction literally translates as this seeking more for oneself. And this is a word that is actually better rendered as greed. Yesterday evening, we talked about greed. In many ways, it set up our discussion for today because Paul is distinguishing here between two attitudes toward giving. He wants the Corinthians to give freely and generously, generously in the spirit of a true blessing. What he discourages is their giving sparsely and grudgingly because they are overly concerned with their own self-enrichment. That is not what it is about. Huh? Now dropping down here to verses 6 and 7. While the focus in verse 6 is on quantity and giving, Paul returns in verse 7 to what? But the importance of proper motivation. Each must do as already determined without sadness or compulsion. Note that although the final gift will be a collective one, Paul desires that each member of the community participate, and each person is to contribute without sadness or without regret. Each person is also to contribute without compulsion. You see, my friends, Paul does not want the Corinthians' gift to be the result of force or coercion or pressure, whether from himself or his emissaries. And he grounds this exhortation with those words, God loves a cheerful giver. What have I said about joy? Joy is the first proclamation of the New Testament. So we are called to give with joy. Charitable gifts must flow from a joyful heart, not one that once again hesitates or begrudges the gift. Reluctant givers show themselves to be attached to their wealth. Their donations, sizable or not, are what? Empty of meaning. God desires you to give from the heart. He desires you to give from your heart. Now, 
Paul in verses 8 to 10 goes on to make explicit the theological foundation of all human generosity. God is able to make every grace abundant for you. Ultimately, what he is saying here is the collection rests on the power of God. Paul once again employs that Greek word, charis, grace. On one level, it signifies spiritual blessings, right? Just as God's grace inspired the Macedonians' generosity in our reading from last chapter, so now he gives spiritual impetus to the Corinthians. At another level, charis indicates material sufficiency, not only to meet their own needs, but also to reach out and help others. We must remember, my friends, that God gives material resources in order that they be shared, as is clear from Paul's statement that God has so provided for the members of the community that they always have all they need. Our Lord will give you everything you need, and if He's giving you more than what you need, we are to ask the question, Lord, how are you calling me to share this with the body of Christ? How are you calling me to be generous, willing to give for the sake of giving? I am looking up at the clock and we are out of time. As always, my friends, if you have any questions, comments, observations about anything I've talked about this evening, please do not hesitate to email me. Or if you have just a more general question about something that has just been on your heart, don't hesitate to email me. You can go to j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com or you can go to my website at joeholcraft.org. That's j-o-e-h-o-l-l-c-r-a-f-t.org. Just hit the contact link button there and send your message on its way. If, by the way, you are interested in uh, purchasing my book, you can just go to my website and access it through the website. So with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.